Welcome back to Both Sides of the Stethoscope podcast. We are going to get right back into the interview with Matthew Brady, who is 31 years post heart transplant when he was a seven-year-old kid. So let's pick up where we left off. What do you usually, what is like a piece of advice that you would give to transplant patients? Something that I deal with regularly, and this sort of came up interestingly enough when I met my wife. So obviously this is part of my life. Um, And so when meeting a potential partner, you have to introduce them to this. And one of the unique things that I felt as though I needed to explain was my personal behavior when I'm, when I go to the hospital and I'll explain that, but I, my mom at the time, because I was so young was my advocate and she took on a pretty aggressive role at the time because she was a for- former nurse, so she knew the medical field, and she knew things had to get done. And given that Columbia is in smack dab in the city of New York, you ca- and a huge hospital, you're dealing with two things. You're dealing with a ton of different people. There's a lot of hands in the cookie jar, and a lot of those hands are ready to give you the middle finger at a moment's notice. So you have to, we had to develop some very tough skin and be very deliberate with our own self-advocacy at the time. And my mom trained me to do this. So back to like meeting my wife, I had to explain to her that regardless of what you see come from me at the hospital, I'm a really nice guy. Um, (laughs) And you should stay with me. But I... I have not everyone likes me. And the reason being is because I know I'm a professional patient, as I've been called. So I know what needs to be done and how to do it almost better than most of the people I encounter when I go there. So if things are not done appropriately, whether it's timing or style or whatever, I let them know, like, I am very outspoken for myself. um, And I raise some hell if need be. So it's just something that it's a survival skill that I've developed through the years of just, I know what has to be done. And I'm going to push and push and push until it gets done. Again, there's a line here because I only know so much. The doctors know more than me in specific areas. But where it really comes into mind, and this quote is from Gary Vaynerchuk, who I love. He says, the medicine itself and how you deliver the medicine are two very different things. And I feel the medicine at Columbia is the best. It's amazing. But there leaves, there's a loss of like the delivery of medicine um, and, and how it's delivered. And, and it comes through in, in many different ways, but I've just learned to be my own advocate. So I know this is tough for a lot of people to figure out how to stand up for themselves because in order to stand up for yourselves, you need to know what the right thing to do is and how to do it. And you only learn those things through experience. 
So if you're not experienced, it's a very difficult and sometimes very scary place to be. And so you you have to put a little bit more trust in the doctors at the time that they know what they're doing. But there have been plenty of times where we knew the dosage of something or what we needed to do. And someone came in and offered up something else and it was completely different. And we shut them down and say, listen, that's not what we're doing. And I've actually, you know, one of the big things now for me is whenever I do a biopsy um, in, in Columbia, I request anesthesia. And it's not a regular thing for people to do. They just do some minor sedation. But I request anesthesia. And I get pushed back on this constantly. But I'm in a place where I know it can happen. And I know it will happen. But I just need to make sure it's like those are that's the thing that I need to battle for constantly. Um, Because people um, are just in a routine. And there's so many things going on. Like, I equate that hospital to the DMV because there's so many people there. It's their strength. <laughs> it's their strength and their weakness. You know, the strength is that you have many minds um, contributing to plans to figure things out and coming from many different backgrounds. But that's also a problem when you're trying. You know, it's a big game of telephone, and you have to go through multiple layers of people communicating. You know treatments and uh, medications and you name it. So um, I've just, you know, through experience, I've just figured out what buttons I need to push and when I need to get loud. And and I know that's not in the cards for everyone, but I, I would say uh, back to your original question is you have to be mindful and aware of what's appropriate and what's what's worth fighting for on, on on different levels. Right. I think everything that you said is, is very important. And I totally agree with advocating for yourself. You know, as you know, Kobe is a cardiologist. I'm an ICU doctor. I did a lot of cardiac ICU. Um, and this is where sometimes like, it is also important to know like the reasons behind why sometimes some hospitals yep. don't have certain operations. Like for example, one of the things that we worry about if we get general anesthesia on board for, and, and this is not necessarily your case. I'm just trying to make mm-hmm. sure that you know our listeners understand this too, is like there are, is a lot of liability that goes into that. We have to make sure that there is someone who is driving you home after. We have to make sure that that means that this is going to happen in case something goes wrong. There needs to definitely be like an ICU bed available. So so there's a lot of operational things that go into our medical decisions at times. And so sometimes um, I tell patients, you should advocate as much as you can. But if you do hit a wall, then ask the reason why. And sometimes when they understand the reason behind something, they're more amenable to kind of the, the protocols that are already set. Again, I, I do want to say that I totally agree with advocating for and and saying that, hey, this is my situation. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what mm-hmm. what usually done. But with that being said, it's also important to understand like the hospital side of things sometimes too. Oh, for sure. And I, <clears throat> you know, I guess because I've been in the game so long, like I know where those lines are a little bit more so. Right. Than, exactly. Than yeah. Other people. Yeah. So, but I think you know. From the provider standpoint, communication is key. You know, there's been, and I I will say this, this is my biggest, biggest, biggest pet peeve. 
And it happens way more than you think it would. But when it comes to communication, you know, communicating like what you're doing and why you're doing it, but as simple a principle as when you meet someone, whether you're a nurse, doctor, anesthetist, surgeon, whatever, introduce yourself yourself. and tell them why you're there. I've had so many people just walk in, treat me like I was like just, uh, you know, a cabinet on the wall and, and just walk out. And, And I have no idea who you're there and what, and what you're doing. So tell me your name and introduce yourself like I'm a human human being. Oh, I you totally agree. I at how many times yep. that, how much that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I, I totally agree with that. I think that was, you know, in a way, the whole point of Aline and I doing this podcast was to kind of bridge this, uh, you know, not divide, but this idea of, of the patient experience and be able to bring our perspective, having uh, not not being prof- professional patients the way you have been, but I'm close starting, you know, um, with my professional patient life starting when I was 12 and then sure. Aline getting to start much later, thankfully for her. Um, but we know going in both sides of it, right? Yep. Whole point of the name of the, of the podcast <laughs> yeah. and that and that gets to the crux of how I think that makes Aline and I better doctors. Of course, I'm biased, but I, I truly believe this. And that's because I have been on Matt's side of things. And that's where I know where I was frustrated and can make sure I don't do those things as a physician. And then at the same time, find myself doing those things as a physician that I would have hated as a patient because I'm overburdened by the medical system that I'm in. Um, And so I understand it now from both sides. And it's not always just so black and white. It it is tough. Um, And I think when you've been dealing with it for as long as Matt has, he's doing the right thing, which is just advocating for himself. The healthcare system is so hard to navigate. um, Mm -hmm. If you don't know what you're even talking about or going there for, and it's hard to navigate and I'm a physician, and I have trouble navigating it. So um, it's, I think, Aline, you know, nailed it right on the head, advocate for yourself. And when you don't get the answer you want, find out why. And when you find out why you might see like, okay, they they would do this for me if they could, but their kind of backs are against the wall as well. Um, And so I think, again, that's, that's kind of why we have patients like yourself on here to discuss things like this. Yeah. And, and I've offered to hospitals, um, to chat with the powers that be to create things, even just, um, a conversation about systems that need to be built. Like, right. So with anything, you know, you need direction. So, uh, a goal is, your direction, and then you need to build a system in order to reach that goal to to go in that direction. So, <clears throat> I think there's there's very much. I think there needs to be awareness from the providers to not just get stuck in the status quo. Like we've been doing this for a hundred years, so we need to continue doing this. You know, if there's something that you think needs to change, speak up you know, and, and, and 
talk about the change that is needed, you know, and I think, you know, you being in the position that you're in, you have the ability, you know, the, the awareness to see those things, but you may also have the power to implement those things um, within the hospital. So I, I do think it's important that there's um, effort on the part of the hospitals to realize that there's a gap um, and try and fill the gap. And it's worth it to do. Um, I know a lot of times, you know, when they look at these things, it just comes down to the bottom line. It's like, is it financially worth it to create this program where now we have people advocate? It's like, yeah, it is important. And not all ROI is in dollars. Return on investment for those who do not know. (laughs) Uh, And also disclaimer, if you are a listener from Columbia, Matt's opinions are his own and not an opinion (laughs) of the podcast. I think it's important to to say say all these things. I, it's very important to advocate and and try to implement programs that will eventually help with patient outcomes and and stuff like that. Now, one of the issues that you sometimes run into if you work in a hospital is like, sure, like it might it might even save the hospital money. It might even be better, but at the end of the day, you need research and data to show that it improves patient outcomes, which is what like. Me and Kobe try to do all the time. Like I'm always trying to see how I can help if it if it will be worth it at the end. It's not so much even about the money. Sometimes it's also about whether or not it's going to improve outcomes. Um, which I think Kobe, your your paper that you had done a couple months ago um, did show like improved potentially improved outcomes with with peer support, right? Yeah, we saw yeah. that improved outcomes with literally very easy changes to make. which was just recent transplant patients visiting, if able to get them access to hot showers, if able to get them into like a courtyard or a garden to get fresh air, very simple things that would improve uh, how patients view their time in the hospital, um, which easily could be, I think, accommodated. Actually, I know they can be accommodated because we talked to people from all over the country and some hospital systems did some things and some did not. Um, so it's a day of kind of just getting them all under the same idea of what, what would be beneficial for the patient population. For sure. So Matt, um, you know, coming up uh, towards the end, but you know, you're, you're 38, you're 31 years out. I'm sure you know what that you know you're probably given a certain time frame on on how long a transplanted heart would last and um so as you've kind of faced you know as the heart has had rejection as the kidney functions getting a little bit worse I do know you have recently become a father um yes. so as you've kind of dealt with this how what has been your approach to this and what are maybe some of the fears that you might be dealing with The only fear I have is that I won't accomplish what I want to accomplish before I my time has come Um the things that I have to go through don't scare me I don't have fear over those Um my focus now has become my daughter and my family and building something financially specifically to leave to them when I'm gone. And so I'm on a mega fight, um, mega push to build that as much as I can before whatever happens happens. And so 
everything I do right now, um, whether I have, so specifically, and I won't go into this too much, but I'm getting into investing and real estate investing. Um, and I also have my own business, uh, that I started a few years ago, but I've modified both approach, like both business ventures into being as passive as possible. And it takes creativity and it takes determination and conviction. So everything I do is just to build something for my family. Um, and if I have to do it from a hospital bed, I'm going to do it. Um, and it's just whatever it takes is, is going to, I'm just going to do it. So no fear other than uh, I have some goals that I want to set or that I have set that if I don't reach, uh, I guess my fear is that I don't reach them, but I'm going to push as hard as I can for as long as I can to reach them and leave my family with something to carry them a long time in their own lives. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, of course, feel the same way, uh, having two new babies of my own now. So um, your view changes, doesn't it? It certainly does. It certainly does. And, uh, you know, for me, it was a whole big thing just in general to make sure that I didn't pass on my my genetic heart disease, um, which, you know, successfully did that. So that's, you know, one checkbox. And now the next would be some sort of legacy to leave for them. Yeah, that was actually brought into question with my daughter as well. So she when she was born, she presented some circulation issues. And so we were at Middlesex at the time, and they don't actually have a NICU uh, echo, which is interesting. So they wanted to transfer her up to Harvard Hospital or Connecticut Children's. Um, so they did that, and I followed her up there. And my wife was actually not fully recovered, so she stayed at Middlesex Hospital. And I told my wife, I said, you know, obviously we're dealing with some heart stuff. And if you could pick anyone in the world to go advocate for your daughter over something heart related, there's no one better to pick than myself. So I went and stayed overnight, four days in a row. I didn't leave, stayed with her. And her issue was actually, um, she did not transition from her in utero heart uh, construction to her out of body heart construction where the blood flow circumvents the lungs um you know and it's held off by high pressures in the upper chamber so when she was born that that pressure should drop and the flow should reverse to go to the lungs it was sort of it didn't fully drop and so the blood flow wasn't that great it was sort of wishy-washy and so therefore her blood oxygenation was not very efficient so when Diagnosing that, they also noticed some um, heart issues, some thickened areas in her heart, um, as well as some extra uh, extra large valve. So it only became a bigger issue than it was, um, than, or I guess than it would have been just because of my history. And then everybody, you know, that's related to a heart gets called at that point. So the idea was. She presented these issues, <clears throat> enlarged upper chambers um, and some thicker ventricles, 
it either could have been from my wife's uh, gestational diabetes, which also presents those things, or it could be from some genetic heart defect, um, some genetic anomaly, which brought into question my whole diagnosis. And so she got uh, tested genetically and there was a marker in her uh, genes that has been tied to a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, But there's no like huge body of evidence saying that they're directly tied. So I guess it's just more data for them at this point and more observation for her specifically, just to make sure we watch the heart and the the last visit she had, um, everything was calming down and looking a lot better. So it was relaxing, which is exactly what we wanted to hear. So they were cautiously optimistic, but they also said that with me, it may have been something genetic that we don't know because at that time, you know, in the early nineties, Genetics was not a tool that it is today. So they actually want me to do some genetic testing to see um, what comes back. And it could very well have been that I had this genetic anomaly. And when I had the adenovirus, it just sort of gave it room to get worse. So it's interesting to, to think about. I mean, not much we can do for me now, other than me get tested and have more data for the body moving forward um, and just figuring some of these things out. So, and and using the genetic testing as a more powerful tool. Aline can tell you all about having a genetic cardiomyopathy and it being unmasked by a viral infection. Yeah, that's actually what happened to me was um, I had uh, like, a, you know, some shortness of breath for a few weeks and then suddenly things got worse. I was 30. And when, um, you know, I got diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy, but of course, uh, thousands or maybe I shouldn't say thousands, hundreds of new genes are found yearly on these cardiomyopathies. And so a year or two later, we did some testing and we realized that it was genetic. My dad also has cardiomyopathy. It was just that his wasn't as bad. Um, he was diagnosed mm. around my the same age as me, but we didn't find the exact gene till you know years after the fact. Um, so yeah, that's actually pretty common. And, and you know, we used to see it all the time in my own patients. Was we thought it was idiopathic, but in reality, it had been some sort of genetic cardiomyopathy that had been worsened by a potential virus. It's a two-hit theory. Yeah, it very well could have happened. So. I'll be getting tested. My wife will be getting tested. Um, I guess what, once you get your child gets tested, they'll they offer you some some branching. So I think it's like three or four free tests. So mm-hmm, we're going to mm-hmm. test as many people <laughs> as we can to see what comes up. And I think if something does come up, they offer you another uh, branch um, off of that just to get more data. You have answered a ton of questions and I think given us a lot of information and I think given a lot of transplant recipients out there, a lot to think about as they go year and, you know, year to year with this. I just hope that people find some value in our conversation today. You know, I certainly enjoyed it. I love talking about this. You know, I I look at it, you know, through an objectionable point of view versus, you know, an emotional one. So I'm happy to talk about it. Um, 
And if anyone listening is wants to talk more about anything heart related, then you know I'm happy to help in any way that I can. If people wanted to contact you, how how could they go about doing that? Well, they can send me an email. You can find me on social media, but email is mbrady1985 at yahoo.com. And which social media are you most active on? I'm on uh, my personal, for my personal self, um, Facebook, um, just Matthew Brady in Connecticut. The other platforms I use are just business related. Um, So I do saltwater aquariums as my business. Mm -hmm. So I focus on that on Instagram. And so um, they're, they're welcome to to message me my company's name is reef assist ct but um however they can contact me I'm awesome open. awesome yeah well thank you so much for coming on and man i really appreciate you sharing your pretty much life story thank uh, you for the info <laughs> yeah it's been uh your almost your whole life has been dedicated to this so good luck with everything good luck with your daughter you and i will of course will stay in touch um yeah and i'd love to meet elena at some point we should get together and have lunch and absolutely yeah chat more about she, this she lives across the country i know though. i live in california but one day i promise i, like Obi, california. Like, I will i will come there and i'll and i'll yeah. figure it out well we can come uh, to california too yeah. Or that, yeah yeah with your with your brand new babies yeah. all of you <laughs> we'll make it happen thank you right. thanks guys thanks Thank you again to Matt Brady for coming on and sharing his story of receiving a heart transplant at the age of seven and going on 31 years now with that same heart. It's been an incredible story, and we're happy that he came on to share it. Thanks so much, Matt. We loved listening to your story. And thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast today. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, uh, any other podcast platform. Make sure to share, subscribe, and leave a review if you like listening to us. Um, In addition, you can contact us by emailing us at bothsidesofthestethoscope at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media, both sides of the stethoscope, um, on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next time.